you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, we'll begin reading verse 1 and continue on to verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on that mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it, enact, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your help as we read your word. We pray, oh Lord, that you would give us insight into what the author of Hebrews is saying, uh, especially when he's comparing uh, old priesthoods and a new one in Christ, an old covenant and a new one in Christ, we pray. Lord, not only that we'll be able to, to keep up with his line of argument, but we might be able to apply exactly what he's saying, that we might be able to trust in Christ alone and to uh, live for him and, and to live for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you are, are probably uh, much more accustomed to having cell service regularly on, on your phone, and so you probably don't need to connect as much to Wi-Fi, perhaps, as you used to, but you know what it's like whenever you go to the airport or something like that. If you didn't have constant service, you'd connect to some uh, open Wi-Fi network. Well, there was a, basically, was an agreement by the user to hand over to the company his or her parental rights and the ownership of the firstborn child. And halfway through the document, it made it very plain, and it even emboldened it and gave a checkbox next to it if someone wanted to opt out of that particular crew. He's in Egypt. Uh, his, he's a, a member of a very large crew for one of those huge cargo ships that seem to never make it to the shores of America. Uh, recently, the, one of the reasons why his ship didn't make it, it was impounded. But only after the captain of the ship had not shown up, had not come to shore, 
Uh, he was late. And so this, this crew member who was one of the chief officers basically allowed the shipping authorities to come onto the boat in order to do an inspection. And he signed his name, giving them the right to do that. What he didn't know is he also signed his name as the legal guardian of the ship in case anything went wrong, in case anything there was any problems that they found. Well, lo and behold, within a few minutes of their inspection, they realized that all the safety equipment was out of date and that they're going to impound the ship. Well, that becomes a problem because as the legal guardian, he could not leave the ship as long as it was impounded. No problem. Normally in America, you'd like, okay, well, we'll figure it out. Four years later, after being imprisoned on the ship, every time he tried to escape, he had authorities escort him back to the ship. No power, infested with all sorts of insects and rodents. In the darkness, he's living most of the days. For four years, his, his mother passes away. While he's there, he has no cell phone access, nothing other than what they provide him, meager food and rations. It's only after the boat finally, a, a huge storm comes in, blows the boat off course, and closer to the shore, he's able to make a quick escape and find some legal help. And finally, he has gotten his freedom. That just happened just last year. Four years. He, the only guy in the world who was safe from COVID by himself. But can you imagine something like that happening, all because you signed a piece of paper, having no idea what you signed? Well, in the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses as the mediator, there was no question what the people were signing up for when they agreed to the terms of the covenant. In the passage that David read earlier from in Exodus 19, the Lord uh, the Lord told Moses that if they would indeed obey his voice and keep his covenant, that they would be his treasured possession, and they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when Moses shared this word from the Lord to the Israelites, they responded by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Bad news. <laughs> They agreed to it on numerous occasions. He gave them plenty of opportunities. After helping them to see how serious this covenant contract really was, he made them consecrate themselves, washing their garments. Thick cloud comes down from heaven so that everybody can hear God's voice speaking to Moses, putting the fear of God in each of them. Later on in Exodus 24, a couple chapters later, again, the Lord explains to them again, the requirements of the covenant, what they're agreeing to. And again, he, he sprinkles blood on them and helps them to see this is a very serious thing that we are entering into. And finally, they say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Behold, Moses says, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with your words. The Mosaic covenant was clear. It was serious. It was weighty. It was a very solemn ceremony. They agreed to all of it. Now, in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews is comparing that old Mosaic covenant with the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And again, his whole purpose throughout the whole book is to show us how everything and everyone that came prior to Christ is inferior to Christ. That Christ is better. He's greater. He's superior in every way. And so now he's trying to transition a little bit from Christ's priesthood being greater to saying, the reason why there was a new priesthood that was required was because a new covenant had been initiated. 
through the coming of Christ. With the change of covenant, automatically there will be a change in the priesthood. And so in the same way that that man was imprisoned on his ship for four years, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that in a way the Israelites were imprisoned unto the law, unto that contract, until the time of Christ came to grant them their freedom. That's his point. And that's what we need to understand through this, that there's a better covenant that would grant much better promises that would grant them life that the law of God and the old covenant never could. And so he's going to use, um, you'll notice in this chapter, uh, half of the chapter is actually a quote from the Old Testament. If you go and look at Jeremiah chapter 31, he's quoting from the prophet directly to explain that this new covenant was needed because the old one was faulty. It could not obtain what the promises had been laid out for it to be obtained. It could not happen through this old covenant. It had to be replaced with the newer one. So, point this morning, there are, four, there, there are four reasons why the old covenant needs to be replaced by a new one. Four ways in which the new covenant is better than the old, and here are the four. First of all, it's better because the new covenant is unbreakable. Second, it's so far-reaching compared to the old. Third, it fosters a greater intimacy between God and man. And then fourth, it's more reassuring than the Old Covenant. Again, I'll, I'll, we'll go through them slowly. Unbreakable, far-reaching, greater intimacy, and more reassurance. Let's talk about the first one. Uh, the New Covenant in Christ Jesus is better because it's unbreakable. As I already mentioned, Exodus 19, Exodus 24, uh, the, conditional, the conditions of that first covenant were based upon the piety and the faithfulness of the Israelites. In order for them to obtain the blessings... They had to prove faithful, which is, did they keep the law? No. And so as a result, literally the writer of Hebrews says that God no longer had a concern for them because they had broken his covenant again and again. We, we even saw that earlier this week in, in our devotional readings. After the, the first generation of Israelites are continually grumbling and complaining, and we see earthquakes and storms and all sorts of things happen, fire coming out from the altar, the next generation, the new generation, even though they have more faith than the previous one, they're still feeling the effects of breaking God's law when they begin to grumble and complain like the first generation did. One, he makes it plain that because Israel did not continue in the covenant, he showed no concern for them. And that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem even for God's own namesake because he saves all of these people out of Egypt and then most of them die in the desert. How can that be a good covenant? It has to be replaced. It has to be something has to come to, to, to fulfill the stipulations of the promise. That's the first reason. It, it was, the first covenant was breakable. The new covenant is not. That's what his point is. Secondly, the new covenant in Christ is better because it's so far-reaching. If you remember, the original covenant was written on stone tablets right? Uh, it, was, it was helped them to see. It was summarized in the form of the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil uh, in the most holy place and the place that only the high priest could go once a year and he would have to sprinkle blood all over the, the mercy seat because they could not keep it and it was passing away. Uh, there was a sense though in which the law of God was something very foreign to them. It never penetrated into their hearts. It was always aloof. It was always distant. God was distant from them because the law 
could not encourage them in their relationship with God, but only condemn them again and again and again because it would constantly show the perfection that is required of God, and yet they could not follow it. Now, this is important to point out, and this, the Apostle Paul will point this out much later on as well. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. Paul would say the law is righteous, it's good, and it's holy. It's not the law's fault. It's the fault of the man who cannot keep it because we don't understand its wisdom. We don't know how to love God and love our neighbor in that way. It's, it's, there's something wrong with us. It's not something wrong with the law. And so in Jeremiah's prophecy in verse 10, the Lord says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So instead of, as Paul would say later on, instead of having the, the law written on tablets of stone, now the law is written on their hearts. So they would know God's law. They would have the power to fulfill it. So similar to what uh, the prophet says, uh, his contemporary, uh, Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, the Lord speaking through him says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. So the, this new covenant is so far reaching. It doesn't tell you what the law requires from afar, from behind a veil. It's now written on the very heart of man. A spiritual heart transplant takes place that enables man to then be able to know it and to love it. Uh, back in 1967, Dr. Christian Bernard, a, a physician in, in South Africa, was the very first surgeon in the world to ever perform a heart transplant. Perhaps uh, some of you were around and, and heard about it in the news. His first patient died within just a, a few days. It didn't take. But he tried again a few months later, 1968, and this time he, he, he gave a, a transplant to a, a, a famous a dentist, and he asked the man, uh, who, who lived a little bit longer, I think he lived about a year and a half after the heart transplant. And it got better each time, right? Um, <laughs> makes you feel good about it, the first patient. Um, but anyway, the second guy, uh, the doctor actually asked him, he said, would, would, you, would you like to see your heart? And the dentist said, yeah, absolutely, I, I, I want to see it. And so he started asking questions, and, and the doctor went over to the cupboard, took it out in a glass jar, and handed it to the man. And, of course, the man was just uh, stunned, silent, didn't know what to say. I mean, rightly so. The first man ever in the history of the world ever to hold his own heart. Finally, he opened his mouth, and, and he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. Does that not speak to our spiritual issue? It's not the law of God. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's the heart. doesn't know God doesn't love God, doesn't love his law. And so literally a spiritual heart transplant has to take place in order that we would know and, and appreciate and, and, and know the wisdom and, and the beauty and the love and the truth of God's law. We don't get it naturally. Something has to take place, regeneration, a new heart. And that's what's promised in the new covenant. Well, it's, it's not only this unbreakable covenant, but it's, it's a far-reaching covenant that penetrates into the very heart of man, so much better than the older covenant uh, through Moses. Then third, uh, the new covenant in Christ is better because it fosters a greater intimacy with God as well. In the original camp of, of Israel, if you remember, Moses really knows God so much better than anyone else in Israel, has an intimate relationship with him, the only one who speaks with God 
mouth to mouth, as it says in, in the Hebrew. Uh, certainly Aaron shared some intimacy, intimacy with God as well, having that s- spiritual privileged position, being able to go behind uh, the, the veil at least once a year and spending all that time in the holy place. But the average Israelite didn't. They, they, they really didn't know God very well at all. I mean, they, they, they had the teaching, they had the Ten Commandments. Uh, part of the, the, the job of the priesthood was not just to perform the sacrifices, but to teach people who God is, that they might know something of him. But even with that, as you know, without having a copy of the Word of God in their own hands and without having that heart transplant, and so little that they could understand, so little that they could really appreciate about God, God was still a distant person to them. They didn't know him, not in that way. Certainly not in the way that they ought to. In fact, uh, their sin would hinder that relationship even more. Uh, and you see that constant complaint in the prophets, uh, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. God says to Israel, I call you by name, and yet you don't know me at all. I call you by name, and yet you don't know me. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2, he says, My people are so foolish, they know me not. They're stupid children. They have no understanding." I know most of you as kids are told not to say the word stupid, but God says the word stupid here. Stupid children, you don't know me. All I've done for you, you don't know me. You don't want to know me. He's, he, he, he begins to uh, berate the, the leaders of, of Israel saying, the priests aren't even looking for me. The prophets have no knowledge of me. They're prophesying falsely. The, the leaders of Israel, they have no desire to know me at all. It's in this context that Jeremiah chapter 31 is written, where, again, in verse 11 of our text, the promise is given. They shall not teach one another, his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the greatest of them to the least. Uh, again, we, we see this new covenant. It's not something where one man like Moses really got to know God, and the rest of them just sort of saw him from afar. Everyone would know him and love him and and, and, and really enjoy that relationship with them, with that, that type of fellowship. I heard of an unusual exercise that took place at the University of Iowa, Northern Iowa, uh, in an art course, nonetheless, where the teacher brought out a, a shopping bag full of lemons. Have any of you heard of this? Brought out a shopping bag full of lemons, and the assignment was for each student to take a lemon home with them and keep it for a number of days and nights and, and spend every hour with that lemon smelling it, handling it, examining it. I don't, I don't know why you would want to spend that much time with the lemon. Uh, but they were, and then after a few days, the students were told to put the lemon back into the shopping bag. At the end of the school day, they were then told to go find which lemon was theirs. Surprisingly, most of them could find their own lemon. I don't know how they determined that, but that's what it says. I'm, I'm taking them at, at their word. They must have marked it somehow. Uh, that, meaning the teacher marked it somehow that would know which lemon was whose. But somehow they knew the lemon because of the time they had spent with it. Uh, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my own sheep know me. How did they know him? Simply through time spent with him in his word and prayer. They know the Lord. They want to know him. They're growing in the knowledge of God, growing in a desire for greater intimacy with God. Even as the Apostle Paul is praying in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know you. That's the heart cry of the new covenant. In the old covenant, like, oh, that's the one that the priests know. No, I, I know God. 
I want to grow in a greater intimacy with God. What a greater freedom that is. You're not having to rely upon the pastor or the teacher or anyone else to help you to know God. We can assist, but you have direct access to know God, to love Him. What a greater covenant that is than anything the Old Covenant could ever offer. I mean, you can know God in a way so much greater than even the high priest could in the Old Testament. You're you're privileged in that way just by being a part of the New Covenant. And then fourth, the New Covenant in Christ is better because it's so much more reassuring. Under the Old Covenant, unending animal sacrifices, constantly pointing out to you that you were not right with God unless something else died. Constantly. Even the small sins, even the unintentional sins. There were, you know, there's sacrifices for unintentional sins. Constant shedding of blood. Although revival could happen within the camp and everyone turned their hearts to God the very next day, sin. And I still don't feel like I'm right with God. I still feel like my sin has separated me from his presence because the old covenant didn't offer a better way. And so we see, eventually, if I start grumbling and complaining, who knows, fiery serpents might come into my camp and bite me. Can you imagine that? There really was very little assurance in that regard. The the reason for that uncertainty is that the sin was never really forgiven. It was only covered over, pointing to the one who would take away their sins forever in Christ Jesus Verse 12, the author of Hebrews, again quoting from Jeremiah 31. He says, For then I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, you have to understand, it's not that the Lord somehow grew more merciful over time. That's not at all what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God has always been merciful, even from the very beginning. Even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned grievously against God, God immediately clothed their sin and their nakedness with those animal skins, right? Even with the covenant that God made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai through the Mosaic Covenant, that too is a covenant of grace. Oftentimes people mistake that as a covenant of works. It's not from the very beginning, as David pointed out when he was prefacing the the Old Testament reading this morning. It's based upon the fact the very preface to the Ten Commandments says, I've saved you. I saved you out of Egypt. Therefore, here's the law. Now, Learn to walk in my ways. The whole point is it, it's salvation first, not law and then salvation. It was never meant to say I have to keep the law in order to be saved. It was always meant to point to a need for a Savior. Think about it. The second God gives them the commands, he also gives them the sacrifices. Could you imagine if God had given them the Ten Commandments and did not give them sacrifices? They'd all be dead the very first day in camp. Immediately, he's giving them a means of restoration. He's giving them a means of propitiation. He's giving them a means of having their sins covered over through the sacrifices. It is a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works. But it's all meant to point ultimately to Christ. Never to the situation in which I feel like, oh, if, if, I, if, I, if I just try really hard today, maybe I'll save myself. No. Constantly, those unending sacrifices point you, I need a Savior, I need a Savior, I, need, I can't do this. I promised I would, but I can't. You ever felt that way? <laughs> you know, you, you, you say, well, I'm going to do better. I really am. Or even as a kid, you'd promise you, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to disobey anyone. It's impossible 
You need a Savior. You can't save yourself. So why the law then? Why does God even give them the law at Mount Sinai? Paul tries to explain that to us in Galatians 3.19. He says the law was added because of the many transgressions until Christ came. So in one sense, the law is given to restrain evil in us, but even more importantly, it's meant to drive us to Christ. The law continues to show us our imperfections. It continues to show us our sin, our ugliness, our dirt, in order to drive us to Christ that we might look for him for salvation. We can't save ourselves. It's impossible. Again, it's so important. I can't emphasize this enough because I think some churches really mess this up in trying to emphasize grace that they, they sort of do a disservice to the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. It's great. It's so wise. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's not, it's not a system problem. It's, it's a user problem. Well, you know those messages, user errors, you know, computer? The, the techies love to make fun of people who are computer illiterates like me, I guess. Uh, but they'll constantly say, it's not the fault of the machine. <laughs> it's a user error. Uh, they'll even uh, use uh, lingo to make fun of us, but we don't even know that they're doing it. Uh, there's a user error called PEBCAC. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, literally, it's an acronym. It means the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair. Or there's another one that's famous. It's called the ID10T error. When it's spelled out, it reads idiot error. <laughs> but they use lingo to try to deceive us. There are fake user error messages out that read simply, user error, replace user, and then click OK. And half the people click OK. Um, but, but that's literally what the Lord is doing in the new covenant. He's replacing the user because it's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with us. The old covenant is, is strictly a covenant between God and the people of Israel. In the new covenant, Christ stands in the place of Israel. Christ stands in the place of Adam. Christ stands in our place as the user who doesn't make errors. The user who, who doesn't sin, who doesn't doubt, who doesn't grumble and complain, who doesn't cause the fiery serpents to come in the first place because he keeps the law. The reason why the new covenant is unbreakable is because when the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to keep God's word, he never breaks his word. It's unbreakable. Whereas the old covenant was always breakable because we're all like Jacob, deceivers. We don't keep our word. In the same manner with Christ standing in our place, the law that seems so distant, so foreign from us, is so familiar and so revered by Christ. When he is, is led by the Spirit into the same type of wilderness testing that the Israelites were led into. Doesn't doubt, doesn't grumble, doesn't complain. Every single time Satan tries to give him something to grumble or complain about or to turn away from God. What does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy. How many of you have memorized many scripture verses in Deuteronomy? It's not one of our favorite books, probably. He knew it by heart. He knew God's law so well. It was written on his heart. And anyone who knows Christ Jesus through the Spirit indwelling us by our trusting in Christ, that same heart is given to us. It's not something distant, not something far away. 
God gives us the heart of God to where we can know his law and love it. It's a total change. I mean, think about it. Before those of you who uh, really came to trust in Christ, you remember trying to read the Bible. You're like, what? Didn't make any sense to you at all. Even if it did, you're like, I disagree with that. (laughs) How brash, arrogant. Oh, I disagree with that. God's wrong on this one. No. God humbles us. He gives us a love for the law, all because of what Christ has done for us in our salvation. Likewise, because Christ knows the Father, having been sent by him to earth, and even now living in a perfect, intimate fellowship with God, he now reveals the Father to us. He invites us into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said that we too might have fellowship with him, that we too might know him and love him. He ushers us into the very presence of God, the very fact that we have a a high priest who even now is seated at the right hand of God so that we can know God and love him as he has loved us. Finally, because Christ has laid down his own life as a perfect sacrifice for sins, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more wrath. None. No fear of earthquakes, fiery serpents, no more shedding of blood. Again and again and again, it all points to Christ, whose blood is perfect, acceptable in God's sight, is received by him, and as a result, when he's on the cross, he can finally say, unlike any other priest, it's finished. It's done. No more altar. Do you see an altar up here? Everybody who calls altar, there's no altar call, guys. There's no altar. The last sacrifice has been made. We have a table to celebrate that it's finished. No more sacrifices. No more separation from God. Unending fellowship because of what Christ has done for us. Because he stands in our place as a mediator, a surety of a better covenant. We don't have to worry about user error anymore. All those insurance guys in our midst. We don't have to read the fine print. Why? Because we never signed the contract. Christ did. There's no more voiding all benefits due to negligence and recklessness. Because there is no negligence. There is no recklessness. Christ has kept the law perfectly. All of our benefits are assured. What greater insurance can you get than that? There's no way that you can ruin the agreement. There's no way you can ruin the contract because you didn't sign it in your blood. Christ signed it in his blood. Assuring us of all the promises, of all the benefits in Christ Jesus. It's Christ who takes and fulfills all the stipulations of the law. He secures all its promises, bears all of its curses, and we are the benefactors. We receive all the blessing, all the promise, all the benefits, and salvation both in this life and the life to come. He has rightfully earned it through his painstaking death on the cross. As the Apostle Paul would say in Romans, for God has done in Jesus what the law 
we can by our flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because he stands in our place. He keeps the requirements of the law. God hasn't abolished the law. God hasn't ripped up the contract. Just he found a better person to fulfill the contract rather than us because we couldn't keep it. The Lord Jesus then, as he said, uh, as the Lord took Israel by the hand and, and led her out of Egypt, you know, that's the description, sort of the figurative language that's used. It makes you think of Lot and, and uh, his girls. If you remember, the angels literally have to take them by the hands and lead them out of Sodom because they're not leaving immediately. Well, in the same way, it's the Lord Jesus taking us by our hand. He's assured of victory. He's taken us along with him to save us. Not because we have done anything, but because merely he's taken us. He's saved us, and it's sure. It's done. How foolish it would be then for anyone, any of us, to turn away from Christ and try to make a new contract with God on our own based upon what we think we can do. You see, that's the problem with the Hebrews they're tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to Judaism. Why would anybody ever want to do that? Why would anyone ever want to go back to all of the sacrifices, all the never-ending condemnation of the law? You can't, you'll never be able to overcome that, ever. And anyone in here who, who has not trusted in Christ, if Christ is not signed your contract in blood, it's your blood that's still signed on that contract. And you're the one who's held accountable every law that is broken. Why would you want that when we have such a great salvation in Jesus? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So as the hymn we sang earlier, praise the Lord Almighty, let the amen sound again from all his people because God has saved us fully, permanently, and forever in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the gospel. Help us to love the law as we love the gospel, knowing that it's not our enemy if we no longer are under the wrath of God, but yet now it's so wise, so good, so wonderful for us. But Lord, we pray that even as we have broken God's law and even as we fall short of your glory, we give you thanks that Jesus has paid the price for our redemption. He has shed his own blood to bear the, the holy wrath of God because of our many transgressions. Lord, help us to know that we're saved. Help us to know the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to enter into a greater intimacy with you knowing that Christ has stood in our place as a better mediator, as a better high priest over a better covenant that can never be broken. Oh, Father, help us to believe these truths and help us to walk in them.